Let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Esther, chapter 5, as we continue our journey through the book of Esther together. We've been watching the life of this young Jewish woman, Esther, who was raised by her elder cousin Mordecai, and though never in her plan or life agenda did she ever envision that she would become the next queen of Persia, but yet Esther, this godly young Jewish woman who went through some very hard difficulties in the earlier years of her life, her parents had both passed away and Her elder cousin Mordecai took her in and raised her like a daughter, and when a process came about where the king of Persia, Ahasuerus, was looking for his next queen, Esther ended up in that selection process and ended up being chosen as the next queen of Persia. Now, we were told also that a man named Haman, who was uh, someone in the king's hierarchy of officials, had been promoted to second-in-command, sort of the second most powerful man in the empire after the king himself. Uh, tells us that Haman was promoted and advanced and has set a seat above all the princes who were with him. And Haman was an arrogant man. Uh, He had a great deal of pride reigning within his heart, and he enjoyed being reverenced and admired. He enjoyed the fact that the people paid homage to him and bowed down to him. But the one man who would not do that, we were told in our study, was Mordecai. That Mordecai, because of his own personal conviction, would not bow down to uh, Haman. He would not pay special homage to him, and this incensed Haman. Haman was incredibly angry by this. It made him furious. And though every other person in the kingdom bowed down, though every other person would pay homage to him, the fact that Mordecai wouldn't, and Mordecai was within the king's gate, so it seems he had some level of prominence as well, uh, because he would not, this was something that uh, Haman just could not let go. It grated on him and bothered him and made him miserable. And so ultimately, he determined that because of his one bad experience with this Jewish man, Mordecai, who would not bow down to him, that he determined that he hated the entire Jewish race of people and that the whole uh, people group of the Jews needed to be completely annihilated. And so he put together this plot to convince the king that the Jewish people were corrupt, uh, that they were a ethnic group that needed to be completely exterminated in incredible hatred and anti-Semitism. Uh, in his hatred, he put together a plan and convinced the king to sign a decree that these dangerous and horrible people needed to be eliminated from the kingdom that the king was ruling over because they were seen as rebellious and just a threat to the throne and just an unhealthy people group. And so uh, a day was set uh, about a year out. Uh, They cast lots to determine what day they should put to death all of these Jewish people. And we're told that that lot fell out, certainly by God's gracious design. Again, sovereignly, God put a delay in the process. And the lot of the month and the day fell about 11 months away when they would go through the land and destroy and put to death all the Jewish people, men, women, and children. Well, word of this was spreading around the kingdom. The Jewish people were becoming incredibly worried and somewhat terrified that their 
annihilation had been planned, that they were all going to be killed on a set day. Mordecai, grieving over this together with the people, it says, sends word now to Esther, who is in the palace, his younger Jewish cousin, who he had raised as a daughter. She had not disclosed her Jewish nationality up to this point. She had kept it hidden, and this was something that her father figure Mordecai had told her not to do. And so now Mordecai says, look, now is the time for you to act. Uh, He informs her what's going on. She wasn't aware, and now she finds out that she, being a Jew herself, is in threat of being put to death also. And so Mordecai told her uh, that there was a plan of a decree for the destruction that was given, and that she should go in and plead with her husband, the king, that he would spare the Jewish people. Now, the problem, of course, is once a decree was made in Persia, uh, it could not be reversed. Uh, That's how strong they felt about their decrees, and the king had already given this decree. So if you glance back with me to chapter 4, just for sake of running context where we left off, It tells us that Esther then sends word back to Mordecai, who has told her, look, you have got to go in and plead for us with your husband. Esther chapter 4, let me just read from verse 11 down through the rest of the chapter as we pick up in chapter 5. It says, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know, and this is Esther's words now, back to Mordecai. All the king's servants and all the king's people in the provinces know that any man or woman who goes into the inner court of the king who has not been called... He has but one law, that they shall be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter, that he may live. Yet I myself have not been called to go into the king these 30 days. So she said, I haven't even had access to the throne myself for 30 days, and I'm his wife because of this protocol, and the king must extend the golden scepter. If not, favor was declined, and you would be put to death if you rushed into his presence or kind of presumptively tried to go into his presence. So they told Mordecai, it says Esther's words, and Mordecai told them to answer Esther, do not think in your heart that you will escape in the king's palace any more than all the other Jews. For if you remain completely silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. Yet who knows whether you have come to the kingdom For such a time as this. So, Esther, if you don't act, God's hands are not tied. God will still find a way to intervene. But Mordecai says, who knows whether or not God has brought you to the place of being the queen of Persia and allowed all the events of your life and the circumstances that have unfolded to put you in the very place where you are at as the queen of Persia, married to this powerful king, for such a time as this, so that you might be able to intervene and spare the entire race of the Jewish people. He says, who knows whether you have actually come to the kingdom for such a time as this, and you were prepared for it. And Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are present in Shushan and fast for me, neither eat or drink for three days. Night or day, my maids and I will fast likewise, and I will go to the king, which is against the law, threatening her life. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. So Esther, her maids, 
All the Jewish people, Mordecai, they begin to fast for three days, certainly no doubt fasting, and I believe praying, seeking the God of heaven for preparation of the king's heart and an open door, and that God, who was the king of kings, would somehow intervene in this situation and work through the circumstances because Esther was now going to risk her very life to go into the presence, not of her husband, but in the presence of the king of Persia, more importantly, and risk the fact of, according to law, that she could be put to death. But she said, I believe the Lord wants me to do this, and I am willing to bear the cost of whatever my obedience would involve. I'm willing to take this step of faith, and if there's a cost or a risk involved, I'm willing to trust God with that. And if I perish, I perish, she says. I'm willing to be obedient no matter what it costs. So three days fasting and praying, and now it tells us, chapter 5, verse 1, it happened on the third day that Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace across from the king's house while the king sat on his royal throne in the royal house facing the entrance of the house. And so it was when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court that she found favor in his sight. And the king held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand Then Esther went near and touched the top of the scepter. So clearly God has moved in this situation. Again, as we've talked about many times in the book of Esther, we don't see the name of God referenced. We don't see direct references to the Lord. God sort of is working behind the scenes in the invisible way throughout this book. No doubt God is at work, but not in the evident and not in the visible. God is sort of working again behind the scenes demonstrating that he is pulling strings and doing things and we see the fingerprints of God through the circumstances that unfold and once again here we see the fingerprints of God the Bible tells us that uh, the heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord and he can turn it like rivers of water whatever way he wishes and so God here puts favor into the heart of King Ahasuerus so that when Esther comes into his presence though she had not been summoned But yet she comes, which was a violation of the law, and he could have, according to law, put her to death. But yet, nonetheless, it says in verse 2 that when she went towards the court, the king saw her, and he... She found favor in his sight, and he extended the golden scepter as a way of saying, you have received my acceptance. I'm extending gracious favor to you. You may approach my throne. You have access into my presence to dialogue with me as the powerful king on the throne. Now, interesting to see how God moved in this situation. Again, this was a door the Lord opened. This was God preparing the way because of the fasting, because of the prayer, because of seeking God before acting, that God moved in the situation to prepare not only the circumstances, but the hearts of everyone involved. And he does the same for us. That's why it's wise for us to pray and seek the Lord before we step into doing things, asking God to move, asking God to prepare people's hearts as is necessary, to give us favor in the hearts of people at times, maybe that we need to interact with. And here uh, we see that very thing happening, and God hasn't changed. We can trust the Lord to do the same as we seek him before we step into different situations. It is interesting, we're told in verse 1, that before Esther went before the throne and the king to gain access, it says, verse 1, that she put on her royal robes and then went and stood in the inner court. She put on her royal robes, that is, she clothed herself with the royal garments, 
to be more presentable and to win the acceptance to the best, you know, in a sense, possible chance. And somewhat it reminds me of how uh, the Bible tells us that all of our righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord, the best that we can offer in presenting ourselves to God. Uh, even our best, most righteous efforts or best, most righteous uh, condition is still like filthy garments before God's holiness. But yet the Bible tells us that we have been robed with the royal garments of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that through Jesus we are made righteous and we're robed with his righteousness, and that's what gives us access into the presence of God Almighty, to the greater throne, to the King of kings. Because if you couldn't get into a the throne of an earthly king, again, how much more we cannot be presumptuous to think we can have direct access to God in our unworthy, sinful, defiled condition. We need to be robed with the royal robes of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when we put those upon us, we receive that from Christ when we put our faith in him. We're in Christ, so we're seen in his righteousness. And with that righteous garment, in a sense, that is how we, like Esther, when the king of kings, when God sees us in the righteousness of Christ, we find favor in God's sight. And he extends to us the golden scepter of his grace, if you would. Again, we talked about last time, Romans 5 and Hebrews chapter 4. It talks about how we can now come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Romans 5 says that we have uh, received access by grace and through faith because of the justification or being made righteous that we've received through the work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So Esther goes forward now. She touches the scepter, knowing that she's received acceptance. In verse 3, the king says to her, What do you wish, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you up to half the kingdom. Now, you want to talk about just the, the amazing reality that she received favor and grace to just be accepted before the king, to just have access into his presence to speak to him, But look at the incredible love and generosity and favor. And again, we make all this amazing grace extended to her. The king doesn't just let her come forward. He says, what's your wish? Name your request. And he says, I will give you whatever you want up to half of the kingdom. Now, whether or not he was serious or whether he just was trying to strongly emphasize, I love you so much, and my heart is so inclined to be gracious to you and to bless you, I will do things incredible. Again, the idea of up to half my kingdom, the idea is there's no request you can make that's going to be too big that I would be reluctant to do it for you because of my love for you and my graciousness that I feel in my heart towards you in the great love he had for her as his bride and wife. And again, as we look at that, that's the heart of a evil pagan king towards his queen, towards his bride. How much more is the heart of our Lord towards us as his bride, the bride of Christ? How much more in his love is he willing to do incredible things for us? The Bible tells us that oftentimes God will do exceedingly abundantly above and beyond what we could ask or think through his power working in our lives. That sometimes we may come to the Lord with a request and we're wondering if he's going to be reluctant. And it's almost as if God says, that's all you're willing to ask. That's all you think I'm willing to do. I'm willing to do so much more often than than what we're even willing to give God credit for. We may think that God's reluctant towards us in some ways. He, he loves us incredibly. 
He's very generous and is a good God and gracious. And we want to remember that when we have access into his presence, uh, that he feels that way towards us, that that's his heart towards us. The Bible tells us in Romans 8 that if God did not spare his own son, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? That is, God gave us his best in Jesus. He didn't spare his best on the front side. The Bible is trying to say we should trust that, that God wants to give us freely all things uh, because that's his heart towards us. He's inclined to help us when we come into his presence. And we want to approach him with that awareness that God's not reluctant. God wants to bless. God wants to help us and give. Jesus said, if you know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give good things to those who ask? So this incredible offer, what's your request, Esther? Up to half the kingdom it's yours. So Esther answered, verse 4, If it pleases the king, let the king and Haman come today to the banquet that I've prepared for him. And then the king said, Bring Haman quickly, that he may do as Esther has said. So the king and Haman went to the banquet that Esther had prepared. So she says, This is my request. I'd like to hold a banquet for you and for Haman. Interesting, we see the pieces coming together now. Haman, who put together this plot to exterminate all of her people, the Jews. And it says that the king calls for Haman. They go, they participate in this banquet that Esther prepares. And verse 6 says, And at the banquet of wine, the king then said to Esther again, because she has not told him more than just attending a banquet. He's thinking, There must be more on your heart than this. You must desire something greater. He again says to her, verse 6, What is your petition? What's your desire? It shall be granted to you. What is your request up to half the kingdom? Then he adds, it shall be done. He says, you name it, sweetheart. What do you want? You tell me what you desire. What's on your heart? What's your request? Don't hold back from me. Tell me exactly what it is you want me to do, and it will be done because I have the power to do it, and I have the heart towards you that I want to do it. And wow, again, this is a human towards his earthly bride, what is the heart of our father towards us? What is the heart of our king towards us? What is the heart of our king, the king of kings, the Lord Jesus Christ, towards us as the bride of Christ, as his wife spiritually? That he might say to us, look, what is on your heart? Just tell me. Ask me. I have the power to perform anything. And I have a heart towards you that wants to do things to help and to bless. It shall be done. Verse 7, and Esther answered and said, My petition and my request is, If I have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my petition and fulfill my request, then let the king and Haman come to the banquet which I will prepare for them. And tomorrow, she says, I will do for the king as he said. So she says, If indeed you want to answer my request and you want to do for me what my desire is and fulfill my request, then she says, I would like to ask, can we wait until tomorrow? Come to another banquet tomorrow. So again, now there's this kind of delay. Again, instead of her asking again, there's this delay. And she says, and then tomorrow, she says, I'll prepare another banquet. You and Haman tend again, and then I'll tell with you tomorrow. Now, Again, interesting to see, this is the hand of God in this. Now, whether Esther sensed that she was to delay, maybe something within her was making her sense that this was not the right time to ask yet, that she needed another day to pray, to prepare, to think about her thoughts a little more thoroughly. 
I, I don't know what it was, but something within her moved her to say, I'm not going to bring up the subject and, and express what's going on and ask for intervention to spare the Jewish people today. She says, please come to another banquet tomorrow if you want to answer my request, and, and I, I will tell you tomorrow. So what we know is this is the intervention of God intervening even in this delay because what this delay does, we're going to see, is allows the opportunity for some divine insomnia to happen. We'll see at the beginning of chapter 6 where this night when King Ahasuerus goes to bed and tries to sleep, God's not going to let him sleep. And God's going to do some things that become an important part, a critical piece in doing what is in the best interest of Esther and the Jewish people and to bring about this salvation of the Jews and to orchestrate the plan and purpose of God as it needs to come to pass. So, again, God allowing a delay, God causing a delay. Doesn't necessarily, we have no indication that Esther knew this was going to happen, but God knew what he wanted to do, so God somehow pushed the pause button in Esther's mind or in her heart, gave her a sense that she was not to ask but to wait another 24 hours. Maybe it was a, a lack of peace within her, and so she waited till tomorrow because ultimately God wanted her to wait until tomorrow because God needed to do something that night first before she would make the request tomorrow so that it would all come together in the best way. You know, sometimes I think we should be wise and sensitive. Sometimes God will maybe give us a hesitation, and God will kind of push the pause button, and God will say, don't press, wait, don't don't pursue. Maybe God will say, you know, wait another day or wait another few days or, you know, wait another week or a month and, or however that may be in our given circumstance. And sometimes it's wise to listen to that. Uh, the servant of the Lord shouldn't strive. And we don't want to strive. We don't want to get too impatient. We want to trust that if God's involved and God's working, uh, that God will do things in the right way at the right time. And so sometimes if God gives us that sense that we're to wait before we speak or wait before we do something, it's important to do that because we'll see because she waits, she does what's in alignment with God's plan. And had she said something prematurely, it would have caused a conflict in what God was actually trying to do. So she says, let's wait, sleep on it. Tomorrow I'll throw another banquet and tell you what you can do for me. So verse 9 says, Haman then went out that day joyful and with a glad heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate and that he did not stand or tremble before him, he was filled with indignation against Mordecai. So Haman that day, he's super happy, joyful, glad. He's been invited to these two banquets together with the king and, and with his queen. He's thinking again all the more about himself that he's a special man. But then he goes walking out, and lo and behold, his great day is ruined once again as he goes walking out. And there's Mordecai, and other people are bowing and paying homage to the wonderful Haman. And Mordecai once again stands his ground, and according to his conviction, he will not bow down or pay homage. And it says that, again, it says Haman was filled again, with indignation against Mordecai. His anger just boils over all the more. Nevertheless, verse 10, Haman restrained himself, and he just went home, and he called for his friends and for his wife Zeresh, and Haman told them of his great riches and the multitude of his children and everything in which the king had promoted him. In other words, he was a braggart. 
He loved to just tell people things about himself, how great his riches were and how blessed he was and how the king had promoted him. He loved talking about his importance and how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Moreover, Haman said, besides Queen Esther, invited no one but me to come in with the king to the banquet that she has prepared. And tomorrow, guess what? I'm again invited by her along with the king. Ain't I special? I got a special invite. And tomorrow it's just me and the king again for a special banquet with him and his queen. Verse 13, he says, yet all this avails me nothing so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. He says, you know, as much as that makes me happy and as great as my life is, I just... I can't even go to bed without a knot in my stomach, he says. None of this matters. I'm still miserable because Mordecai, that Jew, won't bow down to me. Then the king's wife, Zeres, and all his friends said to him, Here's a suggestion. Let a gallows be made. That is where you would hang someone. Let a gallows be made. 50 cubits high, and in the morning, why don't you suggest to the king, while you have his ear at the banquet, that Mordecai be hanged on it. Then go merrily with the king to the banquet, and the thing pleased Haman. That's a great idea. That would be a great way to have a good start to tomorrow, he says. I can suggest to hang Mordecai to the king. And it says Haman was pleased, and he had those gallows made. So he prepares the tool of assassinating and putting to death Mordecai, and he's thinking the next morning, I'm going to tell the king that he should hang this rotten guy Mordecai, and then we'll go to the banquet and have a great day together. Verse uh, 1 of chapter 6 says, That night the king could not sleep. So again, he's having insomnia. He's not able to fall asleep. So no one commanded, or excuse me, so one commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles, and they were read before the king. So the king's unable to sleep. So he's trying to figure out a way to make himself get sleepy or occupy some time. So, again, probably nothing more boring maybe than just hearing chronicles and records of the kingdom. So it says that he sends out a servant and he says, you know what, I can't sleep. Go get the records of the chronicles of the kingdom and, and just read, read to me. Uh, and maybe the monotone voice will ultimately make me get sleepy and fall asleep. So, again, he's unable to rest. And verse Two says, and so it was found written that Mordecai had told Abigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And then the king said, what honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? And the king's servants who attended him said, nothing has been done for him. So look what happens. He says, I can't sleep. I don't know what to do. Go get some chronicles uh, of the kingdom and just start reading me the record books. And let me hear some of the things that have been going on in the kingdom. They kept very accurate records in the Persian Empire. And it says in verse 2, and as this was being done, it just so happened. Again, not a coincidence, called a God instance, not a coincidence. It just so happened that it was found written in the exact scroll or book that was being read that Mordecai, years prior to this, we saw the event back in chapter 2, had found out about an assassination plot of these two men who were the king's servants who were going to kill him. And Mordecai, hearing of this, wanting to protect the king, 
tells Esther so that she can go in and tell her husband within the palace so that the king's life could be spared. And these two servants who were plotting the king's death were caught, they were put to death, and the king's life was spared and he was not assassinated. Well, remember back in chapter 2, it said nothing was done to reward Mordecai for this. He's the one that brought the news and spared the king as he uncovered the death plot, but nothing was done. Again, God purposely allowed so that nothing would be done back then because now God needed something to be done right now because now was the right time for him to be rewarded. Back then was not the right time. It looked like he was overlooked, that he was unappreciated, that he wasn't thanked, that he had kind of been set aside and brushed aside, but that was God allowing that to happen so that this set time and set hour when Mordecai needed to be favored and blessed because that would contribute to the sparing of the Jewish people, this was the time when this would happen. So again, look what God does. God allows a man not to be able to sleep. He lets him start reading. He, he, he puts on his mind to get books, and as the servant goes, which one should I grab? Which one should I grab? Which year? What was a good year? And, and, and he just happens to grab the exact record and read the exact spot. As God's orchestrating all this, again, God's working behind the scenes. He reads the exact spot, and it's found written about what Mordecai had done. And the king says, oh, well, hey, what did we ever do to reward that guy? I mean, did we do something nice for him and his household? Read me what it says there. And it says they told him, uh, actually, nothing has ever been done. No honor's ever been bestowed upon Mordecai for this. And the king's servant said nothing's been done and no doubt the king was ashamed and embarrassed kind of like a, a sense of chagrin I, I, oh my goodness i can't believe we never did anything for him we we need to make this right and do something nice for that man mordecai again god's doing all this because of his plans and purposes hey recognize god is always working in supernaturally natural ways and here we see this very thing and maybe there are times when you may feel like you've been overlooked or brushed aside or passed over. Uh, that may have been God's plan and purpose because maybe down the road, God has something at the right point and the right time. Trust God's timing. Nothing gets overlooked because everything is written in God's record book. And ultimately, God will make sure that you are rewarded and honored for every good thing that you have done for him. And here we're going to see this is now what happens for Mordecai at the right time. So the king said, who is in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court. So daybreak's happening. Here comes Haman. He's coming in with his idea before they go to the banquet. Let me tell the king about this gallows I built last night and how we should hang this rotten man Mordecai on it. So the king's ready to honor Mordecai because he was up all night and couldn't sleep and heard Mordecai saved his life. So the king says, hey, anybody in the court? And lo and behold, again, God just happened to allow Haman to be coming in at that exact moment to suggest, it says, that the king would hang Mordecai on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's servant said to him, Haman is there standing in the court. Haman's here already this morning. He's here early for work. And the king said, perfect, let him come in. So Haman came in and the king asked him, tell me, what's your counsel? What shall be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? I'm looking for some input here. There's a man that I really want to honor in my kingdom he deserves great reward, and how would you honor such a man? What shall be done for the man to whom the king delights to honor? Now Haman, verse 6, thought in his heart, hmm, who would the king delight to honor more than me? 
oh, what an interesting way to go about that. Of course, he must be referring to me after the last two days and all the special treatment and the invites to the RSVP special banquet VIP. Uh, he must be talking about me. Who would the king delight to honor more than me? So he's going to lay it on thick. Let, well, let me just give him a bunch of great ideas so I can get myself blessed. So verse 7, Haman answered the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let a royal robe, which is the king has worn, and a horse on which the king has ridden, which a royal crest placed on its head. Then let his robe and the horse be delivered to the hand of the one of the king's most noble princes, that he may array that man whom the king delights to honor. Then parade him on horseback through the city square, and proclaim before him as he's riding through the city, thus it shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Haman can just picture himself in the fancy robes and the kingly horse and the, all the pomp and circumstance and the people going before him, exalting him. He says, this is going to be fantastic. Thus it shall be done for the man the king delights to honor. And the king said to Haman, that's a great idea. Hurry, take the robe and the horse, as you have just suggested, and do so for, bomb drop, Mordecai the Jew, who sits within the king's gate. Leave nothing undone of all that you have spoken. I imagine his face went pale and then beat red in anger afterwards, hearing that this was what he had just suggested and the king agreed with to do for Mordecai the one whom he hated incredibly, Mordecai the Jew. So Haman, verse 11, took the robe and the horse. You know, he has to carry this out as second in command. He took the robe and horse, arrayed Mordecai, and led him on horseback through the city square and proclaimed before him, thus it shall be done to the man for whom the king delights to honor. I can imagine how hard that must have been for him to have to do that and how angry he must have been. Afterward, verse 12, Mordecai went back to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. Well, he goes home really pouting tonight. Uh, he's going to be certainly incredibly upset now. And verse 13 says, when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him that day, his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall is of Jewish descent, you will not prevail against him, but will surely fall before him. Uh, that's what you call no encouragement. They say, this doesn't look good for you. Haman, if that's what was done for Mordecai the Jew, then it seems like maybe he's being elevated and you're being demoted, and ultimately this is going to be your downfall. In verse 14, while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs came and hastened to bring Haman to the banquet which Esther had prepared. So it's time for the banquet now. So the king and Haman went to dine with Queen Esther, and on the second day at the banquet of wine, the king again said to Esther, again, he's repeatedly asked her, pressing her, what is your petition, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you, please, just tell me, he says, what is your request? Up to half the kingdom, it shall be done. Again, just tell me what you desire, I want to do it for you and I have the power to accomplish anything. Verse 3, So Queen Esther finally answered and said, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, so Lord, uh, my Lord, in a sense, she's saying, if I found favor, and if this would be in pleasing you and a part of your will, I think that's a great way to make an intercession before a king. 
again, certainly the way we should make intercession before our king. Lord, if I found favor in your sight, and Lord, if it pleases you. Again, that's the idea of not my will, but your will be done. This is my request, but if my request doesn't please you, then I don't want you to honor it. If it pleases you, then then bring about my request. So she says, if I found favor, and she says, if it pleases the king, then she says, verse 3, let my life be given to me at my petition and my people at my request. For we have been sold, she says, my people and I, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. Had we been sold as male and female slaves, I would have held my tongue, although the enemy could never compensate for the king's loss. So King Ahasuerus answered hearing this and said to Queen Esther, Who is he and where is he who would dare presume in his heart to do such a thing? So as her husband and the king of Persia hears this information that there has been a plot established to destroy, kill, and annihilate not only his wife, because she is of a certain nationality, but all of her people of the same ethnic uh, ethnicity, he hears about this. And again, keep in mind, not only do you think this is a horrible thing, but the fact that someone is planning to kill his wife, his queen, the love of his life, he becomes instantly angered and irate. And who is he and where is he? There, You tell me where he is. It is going to be off with his head. Who in the world would dare presume to do such a thing in his heart? And imagine this, Esther in that moment, again, Haman standing right there in the presence of her and the king. Esther said, the adversary, the man who's presumed to do this, to annihilate me and my people, the adversary and enemy is this, she calls him, wicked Haman. This wicked Haman. It wasn't just Haman. She says this is a wicked man with wicked intentions. Because again, when anyone has the intention to destroy even one person and mistreat one person, that's wicked. When you hate an entire race of people, an entire people group because of their ethnicity or their nationality, that is just sheer wickedness. It's, it's just demonic to want to destroy a particular people group or mistreat a particular people group. And so she says, it is this wicked Haman right here. This man who's second in command to you, he's the one that wants to annihilate and destroy me and all my people. So Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. I imagine he was and the king arose in his wrath, it says, from the banquet of wine and went into the palace garden. It seems he was so angry, again, probably you know, blood boiling and his eyes bulging, that he just needed to go outside and get a breath of fresh air before he dealt with this because he was so shocked that this is something Haman was planning and ultimately really had kind of tricked him into doing as the person who he thought was his right-hand man, and now he's planned the, the death sentence of his wife and all her people. He just goes out of the garden and just kind of probably walking around, just trying to get some fresh air and collect his thoughts, how he's going to deal with this. It says in his wrath, he just goes out into the garden. But Haman remained in the house, it says, stood before Queen Esther, and notice 
Verse 7 says, pleading for his life. Now he's groveling for his life, terrified that he's going to be put to death. For he saw that evil was determined against him by the king. Oh, how the tables are turning. Verse 8, when the king returned from the palace garden to the palace or to the place of the banquet of wine, Haman had fallen across the couch where Esther was. So he's groveling and begging, and, and she's there sitting on the couch, and he's kind of probably on his knees. He had fallen across it, and he's pleading with her, kind of on her lap almost, begging for mercy and for his life to be spared. And it says he had fallen across the couch where Esther was. As the king comes back in, this is the scene. So he walks out completely angry, full of wrath at Haman, and he comes back in, he finds him now laying across his wife on this couch. And it says that he comes back in seeing this. And the king said, will he also assault the queen while I am in the house? In other words, are you on top of this going to now try and make an advancement or try and worse assault my wife right in my presence? As the queen he says, uh, is experienced as the word left the king's mouth, they then covered Haman's face. That is, the servants came in and dropped a bag over his head. And that's never good when somebody pulls a bag over your head. Uh, so they put a bag over his face. And verse 9 says, Now Harbona, one of the eunuchs, said to the king, Look, the gallows, 50 cubits high, which Haman made for Mordecai, who spoke, or who did good on the king's behalf, is standing at the house of Haman. Then the king said, talk about we call poetic justice, hang him on it. So they hanged Haman on the very gallows that had been prepared for Mordecai, and the king's wrath subsided. So the king, so angry by this, looks for a way now to put to death Haman, and lo and behold, the suggestion comes to the king, look, there's actually a gallows that was already built last evening to hang someone, and, and it's actually right there at Haman's house, and uh, the man Mordecai was actually the one that Haman was planning to put the death on it, so they say, Haman had made this for Mordecai, who spoke good on your behalf. Remember that guy Mordecai, who you wanted to bless and do kind things to, who actually spared your life, who actually helped you out? He says that's who he wanted to put to death, and the king said, you know what? That's going to be the very gallows where Haman ultimately dies, and he built his own death chamber, and they hung him on the very gallows that he had planned to destroy someone else on. Again, amazing how the tables can turn, how quickly God can take what the enemy intends for evil and turn around and use it for his good purpose to do what is good and righteous rather than allowing what is evil to unfold. Proverbs 11 says this. It says, The righteous is delivered from trouble, and it comes to the wicked instead. Boy, what a fitting verse that is for this very story. The righteous is delivered from trouble. Mordecai is spared. The tables turn, and instead, that very trouble comes upon the wicked Haman instead. Because why? Because God intervened. Because God worked. Because God is able to take the curse, the Bible says, and turn it into a blessing. 
It told us that in the book of Nehemiah, that God turned the curse against his people into a blessing. Again, the enemy may try and destroy God's people. The enemy may try and come against God's people to defeat God's people. But God takes care of his children. God has ways to step in and to protect and to show himself strong. And here's a fitting example. It looked like it was the end for Mordecai, but yet God stepped in and reversed the whole situation, turned the whole situation around, spared and delivered Mordecai, blessed, and we're going to see ultimately he'll exalt Mordecai, God will, through the king ultimately, we'll see next time. And God eliminates and removes the threat of the enemy and the destructive efforts. You know, be encouraged. The Lord is able to do the same type of things in our lives. Maybe you're getting a raw deal. Maybe you're being mistreated. Maybe something is coming against you that is unfair, and and you've been trying to battle through that. Look, be encouraged because you pray, you seek God, you keep doing the right thing, and trust God to come to your defense. Trust God to intervene. God can completely turn things around. Remember, they tried to destroy Joseph, his brothers, and do horrible things to him, and they treated him evil. And, I mean, all the horrible things we read in the book of Genesis, and then ultimately God ends up allowing him to be in the right place at the right time in Egypt to become, again, second in command to Pharaoh in an exalted position. And then he's able, when the famine and the hard days come, to spare his family when they come back around looking to buy grain. And as they find out that this is who their brother is, they're terrified because they know they had done horrible things to him. And it's at that point that we're told in the book of Genesis that as Joseph discloses his identities after all the horrible things that his brothers had done to him, we're told in Genesis chapter 50 that Joseph had this outlook talking to them as they were terrified that he was going to now take out his anger and use his authority to put them to death. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about as it is this day to save many people alive. Again, Joseph said, What you did, it was evil. The way you treated me, it was evil. You did harmful, destructive things to me. But he says, but God let what you do to try and hurt me and destroy me. He said, God allowed that to happen, but it never harmed me. And it has never hindered me. And in some way, God took horrible things and he actually used it to somehow cooperatively work together with God's good plan to actually help Joseph become the man he was supposed to be and even experience everything he was supposed to experience. He says, you meant it for evil, but what you meant for evil, God still meant for good. And the Bible tells us in the New Testament that God works all things together for the good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And we can know that and rely on that. Even the wrong things that are done to us, God can take anything and all things and orchestrate them together for our ultimate good and still to bring about his plans and purposes. And the book of Esther is a great revelation of this. We see it in the story. Talk about God taking the situation full circle and doing what is best for his people. Romans 16 says, The God of peace will crush Satan under your feet shortly. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Hey, be encouraged. No matter what's going on, God is able to ultimately still work things for the good. God's working. 
It may not look like he is, and it may seem like there are times when he is silent and invisible, but God's always working. God never loses control, and God will bring about the victory in the right way.